Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 349. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is Tim Maluli, and with me today here is Brendan Maluli. Brendan, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Beautiful day here in Walt Township, New Jersey. Uh, spring has, has Sp- seemed to uh, finally appear. Yeah, spring has sprung. And we are less than a week away from Major League Baseball. Yes, that is fantastic news. A lot of Mets chatter going around in the office and uh, fantasy baseball and all that good stuff. It's good to be back. It's peak, peak optimism for uh, New York Mets fans <laughs> right now. So. so this week there's been a lot of talk about the one-year anniversary of when the market bottomed. Uh, I think it was March 23rd of 2020. It was when the pandemic crash, corona crash, people were calling it, stopped. Which is wild because it only began on uh, February 19th. Right. It seemed like for the last couple weeks, it it felt like the last six weeks of 2021 went a lot faster than that six-week stretch during 2020 for sure. I mean, since then, uh, markets have done really well. And so uh, just to share some numbers, since that bottom uh, through this week, the S&P 500 is up more than 75%. Small caps are up more than 120%. The Qs, uh, so technology, large cap stocks mostly, uh, up more than 80%. Yeah, which are... In a 12-month period, that is nuts. Eye-popping numbers. Yeah. And uh, Nick Majuli from Red Holtz Wealth Management had a post detailing all of those numbers as well. And and he made the point that, you know, we we may never, never see a better one-year rally in our lifetime. Yeah, he, um, he, he dug into the numbers and, and showed that there were only two other uh, rolling 12-month periods with better uh, returns in, in history, and they were in 1933 and 1934. Right, coming so out he, of the Great Depression. He, he just said that, uh, you know, we, we might have just seen the equivalent of like an investing like Halley's Comet. Right, exactly. People talk about buying opportunities. He said, you know, for a lot of people, we could have just seen that could have been a generational buying opportunity. You know, we see the market go down 5, 10, 15, 20% every few years. You know, we, we've outlined how often that happens uh, in previous podcasts and other content. But to see uh, a drawdown like what we saw with that speed last year, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't happen very often. And then the subsequent straight up recovery, it happens even less. Right. And and uh, to be fair, I mean, it's it may be sometimes tough to remember, but I mean, a, a year ago, nobody, nobody in general was was super bullish on things. I mean, it, it seemed right. pretty bad. We we didn't really know what the economy was going to look like for the rest of the year or how long we were going to be, uh, you know, fully shut down with the pandemic really beginning in earnest. Yeah. And Nick Majuli, who again shared these stats, uh, shared a Twitter poll that he did around this time last year, and he said he asked people how long they they thought it would take to look uh, take for the market to recover from the drawdown that that we were in, and only 11% of people who replied, and these are mostly financial professionals uh, who who were all 
connected with on Twitter said uh, only 11% said less than a year. Right. And, and, and the rest of people were one, two years, two to three years, three to four years, and, and that made up the rest of the poll. So right. nobody, I guess his point and one that I think is, is worth noting coming off of such uh, uh, strong returns over prior 12 months now is that nobody nobody saw this coming. And Nick pointed out in that article that he wasn't in that 11% that expected it. And I, I think I remember taking that poll as well. And I was, mm-hmm. I said the same thing outside of, outside of a year, you know, you don't expect, you know, as you know, people who, who study the markets, you know, over time, we, we were bound to get back to the levels that we were pre pre drawdown, but you don't anticipate it coming straight back the way that it did. I mean, it, it went up almost 80% without pause throughout through the end of the year. So I would just use I would just use all of this this information to remember that it was far from guaranteed that the last 12 months played out like like they did. Um, the drawdown happened. It was scary. Hopefully you were in a portfolio with an understanding of of why and you were able to hang in there and maybe even rebalance at some point during the spring last year and, yeah. and take advantage of prices while they were down. I know that's that's something that we did for clients. Yep. Now looking in hindsight don't forget how difficult that period of time was, and don't don't grow to expect uh, 75% 12-month returns because, right. as, as Nick highlighted and, and we shared here, they're very abnormal. So, you know, having the expectations now coming off a 12-month period where the S&P 500 was up 76%, not, not realistic. Right. Yeah, and I, I mean... No one knew what the market was going to do on March 24th. We, di- we didn't know at that time it was going to stop going down, mm-hmm. but it did. And even even along the way, like we like you're saying, there were plenty of people who didn't believe that that was the bottom. Mm-hmm. They said there there's more to go. We we're going to get another leg down. Right. Um, there was there are naysayers all the way back up. It's it's important to keep that in mind when you're looking back on things and setting your expectations from there. Right. I think so, uh, we, we've talked with, with clients, too, I think, you know, of, of late in terms of not, not that we're in any sort of big drawdown right now, but, you know, certain areas of the market, like we talked about on last week's podcast, like like technology or uh, small caps are probably, you know, around seven to 10 percent off of their highs. Right. Uh, while the S&P 500 and the Dow are maybe like only down a percent or a two. So not not that we're in any period of true turmoil or anything, but like to see the market be kind of volatile and and stall out here a little bit, uh, when you put it into the context of the prior twelve months that we've had, yeah. uh, seems pretty reasonable that after a seventy five percent move in twelve months, things might calm down a little bit. Yeah. Or, or for for small caps, one hundred twenty percent in a year. So for them to be in a ten percent drawdown right now off yeah. of their highs they made just last month. I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's anything to get overly concerned about. Obviously, yeah, you you like to understand everything that's happening, but uh, not nothing that that we see as a reason to make wholesale changes to investment plans. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And uh, another point that Nick made in the, in the post after a year where things went straight up from the bottom there, eighty some over a hundred percent, it's easy to feel like an investing genius. Mm. Um, he used the the phrase how a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. When the market in general as a collective whole is going essentially straight up, it's mm. very easy to get a um, inflated sense of confidence yeah. when picking different investments or if you try and if you jump into trading like we saw a lot of 
towards the better half of, of last year and into this year, you know, after the run up that we saw in, in 2020, I think people just got a little, uh, their, their heads got a little big yeah. for their britches. And... I think, I think one of the hardest parts of investing is weighing the confidence that comes from runs like what we've seen in the last 12 months with, uh, you know, the despondence that can come from what we saw just before that with right. the 20, 30% drawdown and, and taking those two things, recognizing that you're going to deal with both of them as an investor and then creating a mix of investments that speaks to your temperament and what you're able to endure, meaning not getting overly excitable on the way up and, and not getting too, uh, uh, too, too upset on the way down. Both are inevitable parts of, of investing. It's just the matter of how you how you want to uh, be positioned to deal with them. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you said before, not to expect 75, 80% runs in, in the market in a 12-month period, every single 12-month period from here on out. You know, we are, like you said, we're experiencing some some drawdowns in some areas of the market. I thought uh, an interesting article to contrast what Nick was saying was something that I saw on CNBC uh, about how the headline read that more than half retail investors think that the market is rigged against them. The survey came from Bankrate, and it said that 41% of non-investors feel that way, but also 56% of people that are investing think that the market is rigged against them. This I, survey came in February, right after the whole GameStop and meme stock explosion, and people felt that the hedge funds and Wall Street were manipulating stocks and all that. The, the numbers are probably a little inflated from what they typically are, but after a year where we saw some funds and some areas of the market, a lot of areas return 80, 90, 100 plus percent, it's just funny to me to see that many people think that the market is rigged against them. It's, it's a matter of what game they're playing because right. if you're playing the game where you're day trading, you're playing against high frequency, high frequency traders, right. hedge funds, the titans of our world. You don't need to play that game to be successful is the point that you're making. You yeah. could have had a, a diversified portfolio over the last 12 months and done really, really well. And for that matter, you could have had a diversified portfolio over the last decade yeah. and done really, really well. But right. if you choose, instead of being in uh, a somewhat boring investment approach where you're not making a ton of adjustments, uh, maybe rebalancing and, and making a couple changes over the course of a year. If, if instead you're making a couple of changes every single day, um, you're, you're opting into the major leagues when you don't need to play at that sort of level. And quite frankly, yeah, the odds are stacked against you if that's what you're choosing to do. But, but no one's putting a gun to your head to make you do it. It's like if, that's, if the market going up 75 80% is rigged against people, I would love to see what a market working for them would do. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, geez, that's... Still pretty good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. It's just like short-term memory, I guess, too. Like you, f mm -hmm. people forget quickly, forget flip flip the switch from fear to greed back and forth yep. a lot throughout, even throughout a twelve-month period. Yeah, um, you forget what happened last year, and you're only thinking about what's happened over the last couple weeks. Mm -hmm. And again, I think we we always run into instances where people are interchanging the terms investors and traders, and mm -hmm. I think that that. That's a distinction that should have been made more in the article.
Yeah. But yeah. people use them interchangeably. And, and uh, you know, along the same vein as trading and day trading and, and opting into games that are difficult, I think Michael Batnick shared a, a, a really good, like, update to um, a study that J.P. Morgan has released in the past, had some new numbers. It was called The Agony and the Ecstasy. Right. And it's, it shared a lot of numbers about um, individual company risk. And so, like, if you're playing that game of picking stocks or trading stocks individually, I, I think this is some good data, and and you know I've I've seen this stuff in the past, and this is some of the information that has shaped why I I approach investing the way that I do, meaning you know diversification, ETFs, and not necessarily loading up on single stocks, um, because I just I I think that data like this highlights. Um, the risk is just too great, you, and, I think, for a lot of people. And I don't think that you need to be doing it right. to be successful. So ju- just to share some of the information, this, this study by J.P. Morgan showed that first of many stats here. Since 1980, more than 450 names have been removed from the S&P 500 due to financial distress. The, That's a lot if you think, I mean, the S&P 500 is supposed to be the, the largest 500 companies in the United States. Right, so just to show that like, if so if this happened over 40 years that means that basically all of the constituents of the S&P 500 index today over the next 40 years if if this is any guide to how things move forward will be will be obsolete or gone or uh companies that we like chuckle about right. uh you know that used to be something gigantic and remember amazon right and are just that like a shell of. of themselves and it seems implausible i'm sure it seemed implausible in 1982 when you when you uh listed off all all of these companies but there's going to be turnover in the index, and if you if you end up picking one of these companies that is one removed for financial distress, depending on how much you have in it, I mean, you, you could be taking on a ton of risk there. Uh, but since 1980, the the index itself has done really well despite the turnover in these names and having exposure to names over time that didn't do so hot. They they were dropped from the index over time, and I think that's one of the benefits you get by diversifying and and even just using market cap weight like an S&P 500 index. Right. Yeah, I think there are years and there are instances where, you know, a, a single stock like I mentioned Amazon or, you know, big tech names over the last handful of years have just been knocking it out of the park and people get antsy and they're like, well, why don't we just own all of this? And there, it's like you said, it's implausible. People can't process the thought of these companies not being around in the future. But to that point, like, it's almost a certainty over a long enough stretch of time. Yeah. I mean, these companies might exist in the future, but it doesn't to mean say that at the top of their industry anymore either, right. just existing. Or they could look completely different from from what they are right now. Yeah. So so along that same vein, like if you if you think that just piling into one stock that has worked really well uh, of late makes makes sense. Uh, same study showed that 44% of all companies in the Russell 3000 index since 1980 have experienced what they defined as a catastrophic loss, which is a 70% or more decline with no full recovery. Wow. Or no recovery at all, meaning right. like the business is gone. If you're if you're looking at the odds then of trying to pick one of those 3,000 stocks, I mean, 44%, that's almost, almost a coin flip. Right. You know, like if you're picking, just trying to pick one out of thin air, you almost have a 50-50 shot of picking a company that will experience something like that. And this might speak to the period of time, too, that uh, the study captures, but to break it down further by sector, 65% of energy companies had a catastrophic loss over that time period, Uh, 59% of tech, which has been 
I, I think this is probably skewed because it captures like the tech, the tech bubble, bubble in mm-hmm. 2000, but right. um, 14, even 14% of utilities had a catastrophic loss of greater than 70%. We hear from folks all the time who think Some, that utilities are like as safe as like a bond cash proxy. and bonds. Yeah. yeah, it's like that. It's prob- not the case. Probably, but, yeah. but de- not definitely. So right. you should approach it with that in mind. There's still tons of... There's definitely risk, risk there. there. They're, they're yeah. going to go down when the market goes down. It's it's not any easier, even if you delve into some of these these sectors. I think the risk is very real, and so you know to have companies with this sort of risk and to have all or a large portion of your money in one company. I mean, sure, if it ends up being the ones that that works out, then then great for you. However, I think you're taking a lot more risk than than you necessarily need to. That's the main point for for the everyday investor out there who's probably listening to it, it's like, it's a, it's a need thing. Like, do do you need to take all of this risk? It's need versus want. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people enjoy, you know, all, all of the risk that comes along with owning individual stocks or that, you know, they like the high flying octane business of stock picking. But for almost every other person out there, it's just not a necessity. No. And, and I mean, to, to take this further in terms of what your alternatives might be, yeah, since since 1980, looking at the Russell 3000, 42% of the, the stocks in the Russell 3000 over that period of time did worse than just having like T-bills to cash. <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, that's let alone, we talked about the decline, so you should, you should anticipate more volatility when you own an individual stock than... Uh, than an index or, or even right. like a sector fund or something. So moving out the spectrum in terms of the volatility, that 70% catastrophic decline, that's yeah. one thing. But since 1980, 42% of them were worse than just having your money in cash. I think it's uh, eye-opening for, for a lot of people to s- potentially see those numbers when you're just drilling down to the individual stocks versus how like these indexes overall have performed since 1980. Because we're not saying that the Russell 3000 had the index itself has been a bad investment since 1980. All of these right. indexes have, you know, posted pretty nice returns over the last handful of decades. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the difference between owning the individual parts versus the whole machine. Yeah, and, and on that note, so over that time period, 66% of the stocks in the index underperformed the index. Right. So, so you could have beaten two-thirds of these stocks by just owning the index, and you would have had way less volatility Way less company-specific risk to worry about, and yeah. you know, stories to be tuned into along the whole way by by just owning the index. And that also means that a third, a third of those stocks were carrying the performance of mm-hmm. the index over that time. But you know, how are you supposed to identify what third of those stocks you know are are going to be outperforming? Yeah, I mean, it's there are a lot of people out there that will tell you that they can, and they have very convincing narratives as to why they can. But the studies that S&P Dow Jones do show on a pretty consistent annual basis and then rolling three, five, 10, 20-year periods to that most active mutual fund managers don't beat their benchmark. And so right. uh, if those are supposed to be the experts that could guide you to this one-third of stocks that were better than the index, I'm not sure there's a, there's a great amount of evidence to support paying them a fee to search for that. Really, and they, they even looked at here, so like 10, 10% of the stocks in the Russell 3000 over that 40-year period were what they termed a mega winner, which was being more than 500% plus what the index did over that period of time. Could could you find one of those and, and ride the wave the entire time? Sure. 
I think I'd remind you, though, that most of the companies in, in the index, even the mega winners, experience drawdowns in the right. realm of 40, 50, 60, 70 percent. I mean, you can name all the darling stocks of today, and they've all had their periods of time where they got beaten to a pulp. And yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm not I'm not sure that even if you identify one that is one of these mega winners, that you're going to be able to hold it for the entirety of that period of time. It's yeah. uh, easier said than done, and it and it looks like a layup in hindsight, and it I I'm just not sure that it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think, you know, main point here is that stock picking is really hard. Yeah, and it's not necessary in ninety nine percent of cases. I looked I looked and in nineteen eighty the Dow Jones Industrial Average was around seven eight hundred, and so so <laughs> total yeah points yeah. right. So like you could compare that to where we are today. And thirty thirty two thousand right, and so just to your point, I don't think that's a game that most investors need to be playing in terms of picking the individual companies. Right. So it, if you it may just... be more fun, it may be something that you enjoy doing, but I'm not sure anybody's financial plan or, or future well being is predicated upon them nailing one of these mega winner stocks. Odds odds seem low, and if that's what you need to make your plan work, you should develop a better plan. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's not a very good one if you're banking on a low probability outcome like that. Right. Exactly. If you, if you need to hit that Hail Mary. It's a tough yeah. spot to be in. Absolutely. Uh, consider consider all other options available. This is the last podcast that we're doing before the baseball season starts. We did a podcast right before the football season started. Hmm. And I asked you to predict what you thought the Jets were going to do. Because for listeners, me and Brendan are both Mets and Jets fans. I think your Jets prediction was a little closer to what they actually did. I think you were in the four to six win range. I was wildly optimistic, and I said <laughs> they were going to go eight uh, 500 and go eight and eight. Yeah. Clearly, that did not happen. No. So, let me pose the question to you. Before opening day, how many games do you think the Mets win this year? I think they can do 90, and I think they'll compete for a playoff spot. I don't know that that'll be good enough to win the division, because... Atlanta looks really good, and I, quite frankly, I think the entire NL East is very good. So right. uh, I think 90 wins does it, and I'm optimistic with Steve Cohen at the helm now that this can be a new chapter for the Mets. But I stand prepared to eat those words, yeah. and as soon as May, I, I'll probably be grumbling about them. So I'm going to, like my Jets prediction, be a little more bold. Yeah? Uh, just a little bit. I think... I think the Mets could win up to 95 games hmm. this year. I think they can. I think they'll win the NL East. I think Edwin Diaz is going to lead the NL in saves. Wow, timestamp it. Uh, Let's go. Jacob Degrom is going to win his third Cy Young. I hope you're uh, right. And that's it. That's that's the last bold prediction I'll make. I hope uh, you're right. And I, playoff team. And I hope I hope that we can get uh, to the ballpark at some point later this year. That would be great. I would I would love to be back at City Field again in 2021. Same here. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 349 of the Maluli Asset Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.